0: I'd ask that you'd take your copies of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 14, as we continue our studies through Luke, picking up today in verse 15 of Luke's Gospel, chapter 14, and we'll be studying together through uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 24. Uh, Just uh, as a side note, you may be aware that today, as the last Sunday in October, Uh, Today is what we uh, often celebrate in the Reformed churches as Reformation Day, a time to remember and to be thankful for uh, the heritage of godliness and and the provision of the gospel uh, that we have found through the the Reformation that the Lord brought about uh, five centuries ago now. Uh, And as uh, theologians and scholars and historians think about Uh, When exactly do we mark the beginning of the Reformation? There are several answers that are given to that question. Uh, Most often, uh, the answer that is given is that uh, the Reformation took hold, really, on October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses uh, to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. Uh, There are other momentous occasions, though, in the history of the Reformation. One such momentous occasion uh, a real turning point in the history of uh, Protestantism, the beginning of the Protestant church, uh, was in the beginning of a, a January in 1520, uh, just several years after those 95 theses were nailed, and there was a recent uh, convert, a priest by the name of Ulrich Zwingli, a Swiss reformer, uh, and he had just uh, come to believe in the doctrines of grace and the Protestant Reformation, and in January of 1520, he stepped into his pulpit uh, and began to teach sequentially through the Gospel of Matthew. Now at that time, uh, it was uh, a new thing to engage in expository preaching, to go verse by verse as we typically do uh, through the Scriptures and to expound the truth to the people. Uh, And uh, and it's said that that he was a bit halting in his preaching and, and just feeling out how is this to be done, and at that time, Uh, There were also no pews in the church. And sometimes his sermons would last up to 90 minutes. But the word also comes to us that the people who were there were wrapped with attention as Zwingli preached because they had never heard anything like it. For someone to stand and to open God's word and to teach them about Christ, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph. And this is the great heritage that we have. This is the gift of the Lord that he's given to us. And we ought not to take this for granted as we now turn together uh, to Luke's gospel, not to Matthew, but to Luke's gospel as we go through and see again now. We've been uh, going through Luke's gospel for a little bit over two years, and, uh, and we're a little over halfway through. Uh, so today in Luke chapter 14, we're picking up with what is known as the parable of the great banquet, sometimes known as the parable of the excuses, and you'll, you'll see exactly why. But Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 15 today, And we'll read through verse 24. And uh, before we read God's word together, let's join again in prayer and seek his blessing upon it. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. You've given us the freedom to come and to see it and to hear it and to receive it, as it were, from your mouth. And so we thank you that this has been handed to us your living word, and we pray that by your spirit you would open our hearts before it, we pray that you would uh, cause us, O Lord, to see and to know more of Christ and to love him and to follow him because of your work among us, we pray in Jesus Christ's name, amen. Now, won't you stand together with me as we read God's word in Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him, that is, with Jesus, heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, I must go out and see it, please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them, please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled. And blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges, and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Amen. And thus far ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together. You may be seated. Well, if you are uh, keeping up with the continued news briefs week by week, you know that this past Wednesday, our governor, Charlie Baker, uh, gave Massachusetts the advice that everybody saw coming and nobody really wanted to pay attention to. Uh, He encouraged us, he reminded us that in the continued fight against COVID, we ought to rethink our Thanksgiving plans. He said that this is a year, if there ever is a year, uh, maybe not to do any travel, Maybe a good year this year to, uh, to skip the gatherings that we have beyond our households. And we all know the drill by now. Uh, because we know how we have uh, wished uh, Happy Mother's Day through computer screens. And we have masked up for our Memorial Day barbecues. And we've scrapped all of our parades for the Fourth of July. And we know, we all expected that Thanksgiving was just the next in a very long list uh, of, uh, of Corona cancellations. I don't raise this to make any sort of political comment. You know me by now. That's not what I'm about. But but I do raise this to uh, to say that there's something particularly sad about not being about being told not to gather for a feast on Thanksgiving of all days and all those other holidays that that we missed. Well, those can all be celebrated. Many of them might have a meal or they might not have a meal. But Thanksgiving, it it is a meal. <laughs> That's the whole point. It's a feast. It's supposed to be a gathered feast where where particularly Christians will gather together and give thanks to what the Lord has provided for his people. It's a feast for Thanksgiving. That's the whole point. And without the meal, without the feast, and without the fellowship, it's just an extra vacation day. I wonder if you've considered, with with all of the many ways that humanity has invented to celebrate things, why is it that sitting together at a meal seems very often the most appropriate thing to do when, we want to express thanksgiving. We want to experience joy and, and, and community or, or uh, celebrate our freedoms or, or a love or, or some sort of victory. Why is it that, that feasting is what we do, not just at Thanksgiving, not just in America, but, but almost universally, cross-culturally and, and, and across the generations and the centuries? Why is it that feasting is so important? Feasting, of course, is different than just meeting biological needs. It's not just about uh, feeding your body, and it's even not just about gorging uh, for that one day of a year that you can, you can have all that you want and feel like you can get away with it. It's not just about those, those needs of food and drink. Feasting is about celebration. It's how we express joy and community, how we express satisfaction and, and fellowship, it's no wonder that in God's word, in the scripture, God's grace often is, shown, is portrayed to us. It shows up in terms of a banquet. Jesus, obviously, in this passage, uses a parable all about a banquet to teach us truths about the gospel. But that came as a response to this man in verse 15, almost glibly uh, exclaiming one of the great hopes of the Jewish people, to, to eat bread in the kingdom of God. And there was an Old Testament precedent for that language. You could go back to Isaiah. You could see in chapter 25, verse 6, uh, how the Lord promised that on on the mountain of Zion, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. Then you skip to the New Testament all the way in the end, in Revelation chapter 9, and the New Testament is ending with, this promise, that uh, this, this other benediction upon those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And until that day, when that day comes and that, that feast is celebrated, the church gathers week after week and we proclaim Christ's death until he comes. And we do it with symbols of the feast that we long to celebrate together in his presence. It's not a small thing when we think of particularly the, the biblical imagery that, that shows up as, uh, as the Bible teaches us about uh, banqueting and feasting. It's not some passing superficial metaphor, but rather God's grace is a feast spread before his people. And the gospel comes to us as a glorious invitation to come and eat and drink by faith and to be satisfied with Christ and what he provides for us. And this parable is all about God's commitment to fill his people to the full at the table of his mercy. It's also about the sad reasons that many people decline that invitation. It's also about the joyous surprise of finding that at that table there are many there. In fact, all those who are there are those who don't deserve to come in at all. Well, Jesus begins uh, his teaching tonight with God's rich invitation. You find that in verses Uh, 15 to 17, God's rich invitation. Now, you've been to one of those family meals. You know how they go when somebody who's there, uh, maybe that odd uncle, uh, says something offensive, and now everybody is sitting there awkwardly waiting for somebody to change the subject. Uh, There's a good chance that that is the situation that's happening at this point in Luke chapter 14. Don't forget uh, the narrative that began all the way back in verse 1. This is one scene, although we've broken it up into several weeks to look at it. Uh, Jesus is brought in uh, on a Sabbath. He is a guest uh, at a dinner party. He's a guest in enemy territory. And everybody who is there at the home of a prominent Pharisee is watching and waiting to see what he will do and to hear what he will say. And in the course of a single meal already, Jesus has condemned their heartless legalism. He has told all the guests that they're seeking the wrong things, and he has told the host that he's invited the wrong people. And so Kent Hughes says that by this time in the dinner, everybody in the room had been deliberately insulted by Jesus. And here comes some sensitive guest, some fellow diner with a smooth segue. Let's change the subject. Let's think about something else for a little bit. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. It was meant to be a tension breaker, the kind of thing that's so so blatantly obvious, this theological truth that everybody could get behind, and we could all just have a let's all get along sort of moment. It was also a kind of self-satisfied dodge. Because, of course, as, as upstanding, exemplary Israelites, the Pharisees and all their friends, they were the ones who would be guaranteed a seat at God's table, their Uh, their discompassionate Sabbath practices notwithstanding. So maybe this is a bit of reassurance. Maybe he and and others there are thinking, we don't know for sure, but maybe they're thinking something along the lines of, you know, let's let's not get tripped up about care for the poor. Uh, Let's not pay attention to, to seeking our own honor. Let's just think about the day when the kingdom doors are open to us, and oh, won't it be great? When we get to go into the kingdom and recline at the table, and Abraham will be there, and Isaac will be there, and Jacob, and all the patriarchs, and we'll get to be with them, and blessed is everyone, and by everyone, we mean us, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus' parable is something like a needle to burst that balloon. And he begins by teaching that actually. The people who are sitting there haven't yet grasped a fraction of the goodness that is to be found in God's kingdom. The feast of God's mercy is far greater, far richer, far more abundant than they could possibly imagine. He says that a certain man gave a great banquet, a great banquet, and invited many. At the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. This is not a potluck. This is not the kind of meal where, where it's all made up of family contributions. This is not uh, one of those fundraising dinners where you play, pay for your plate and then you brace for the sales pitch. This is a Middle Eastern banquet of the highest order. This is course after course after course after course of warm breads and bitter herbs and roasted meats and fattened calves and cakes of, of, uh, of Fine flour mixed with honey taken straight from the comb. This is, this is my cup runneth over kind of language. That's the kind of banquet that's happening here. It's a kind of meal where it would be an insult to offer to bring a side dish. Maybe you also saw the news story this week about that young couple in that swanky restaurant in New York City. And they were there and feeling a little bit over their heads, and they ordered an $18 bottle of Pinot Noir, and the, uh, the waiter accidentally brought them a $2,000 bottle of Bordeaux. <laughs> this is the kind of banquet where the Bordeaux is the only wine on the menu. The, the Greek here, uh, for the word for great in verse 16, actually the, the word literally is mega. This man gave a mega banquet. It was huge. He invited many people. He served the servants to announce that everything was prepared. It was all now ready. All the guests had to do was to come and to enjoy. Folks, this is the gospel. God is the host of his banquet, and the gospel is his invitation. And when we hear it, we only need to come and by faith find that our God will supply all our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This banquet is, is an echo of of that other Isaiah passage, Isaiah 55, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat, come, buy wine and milk, without money, without price. And the imagery comes to us, the 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 parabolic language comes to us with feasting, with hospitality, but there's a reality behind this. And God's rich invitation is that sinners can come and find fellowship with the God of heaven. That through Jesus Christ, all the forgiveness that we need for our sins has been prepared already. And all the righteousness of Jesus can be applied to our account and all the intercession that our feeble prayers lack we can find in his sprinkled blood and all of our hope of eternal life can be found at his empty tomb. This banquet is a reminder that by God's indwelling spirit That he gives us and promises us victory over besetting sins. He gives us a message of reconciliation to share with the world. He puts his word in our heart. He puts his promises in our prayers. Christ has come that we might have life in abundance. He's come to fill our cups to overflowing. And through the gospel, God's rich invitation goes out to the world. Come, he says. For everything is now ready. But you know, when God's invitation goes out, far too often it is answered by man's empty excuses. This is our second point. We find it beginning in verse 18 through verse 20. Man's empty excuses. Now verse 18 really is where where the plot thickens in the parable. It's also where Jesus continued clash With the Jewish religious establishment, it gets a little bit more interesting. He says that when the servant went out to call the guests to dinner, uh, verse 18, they all alike began to make excuses. Now, uh, those first century ears that heard those words, that is unthinkable. That is an outrageous offense. At this time, in in that part of the world, there was uh, a universally recognized two-invitation system. It had had been in place, at least we we find it in the scriptures, from the time of Esther. It continued, we know, from from some of the Jewish writings well into the 5th century. A banquet always had more than one invitation. You see back in verse 16, it says the host invited many. But then in verse 17, the servant was sent to those who had been invited. They're already on the guest list. You know, banquets at this time, they they involved slaughtering animals. And when it was all over, you couldn't take uh, all of the the leftovers and just toss them in the freezer. And so all of your preparations depended on knowing exactly who, what kind of people, and, and how many people were going to be at your banquet. Which fattened calf would you kill, if any? How many servants do you need to have on hand? How many cakes do you need to make? How much bread do you need to bake? How much flour do you need to mill? All of the things that go into it, it's all about knowing who was coming. And so hosts always sent out one invitation at least several days before the banquet. And then when everything was ready, when the meat was being cooked and the table was already set, you sent out the servant to gather in all of the guests. And you could decline the dinner invitation, sure, but never at the second call. Never at the second call because by then the arrangements had already been made. If you accepted the invitation when it went out at first, you were duty bound to show up on the day of the party. And so another older commentator points out uh, that to refuse the second summons was an insult equivalent among some of the Arab tribes to a declaration of war. And you remember that parallel passage in Matthew chapter 22. That's almost exactly what happens. There, it may be a variation of this parable that Jesus told at a different time, but there it's a king who's giving a banquet to celebrate the, uh, the wedding of his son. And he has a guest list, he sent out the invitation, and then when he sends out uh, the second summons, uh, the guests refuse that call, and it escalates from there. It goes on to, uh, to shameful treatment, to murder of the servants, and eventually the king takes it as a declaration of war. He destroys those men, he burns their cities. Now those details are absent in Luke chapter 14, but we know that that is the direction that these excuses are headed. This isn't just a miscalculation of somebody's calendar. It wasn't a glitch in somebody's palm pilot. That they say, oh, I forgot about that. These excuses were filled with contempt for the one who, uh, who had invited them to this banquet. Well, so what were the excuses that they gave? Well, some said, I, I've got to go and check on my possessions. Now I bought this field, I've got some oxen, just a few, just, you know, 10 oxen, 20,000 pounds of livestock. I bought a, a few things and I need to go and check them out and make sure that, that my purchase is really worth the price that I paid. Come on, those excuses are transparently false. No one with any economic sense would, would engage in those kind of deals without knowing exactly what they're getting into. And even if some fool had made those purchases sight unseen, what's the rush? The field's not going to go fallow overnight. You can go and try out those oxen tomorrow. There's no rush. There's no reason that that now has to be the time that you turn away from your social obligations. So the only thing that these excuses prove is that these guests don't care at all about the invitation. They don't care at all about the host. They'd rather spend their time on, on the things that they can acquire than on the hospitality of the one who has given this rich invitation to them. Some go to check on their possessions. Others go to focus on their relationships. Verse 20, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. (laughs) That at least uh, sounds noble, doesn't it? Uh, Didn't didn't the law of Moses say that a, a man was exempt from certain duties, at least until the honeymoon period wore off, and that first year of marriage? Well, yes, it did. Deuteronomy. Uh, Chapter 24, verse 5, but that was talking there about military duty. Had nothing to do with, with social commitments and avoiding those. Far better, far better to keep your word. Maybe bring your wife along with you. Maybe she'd like to be at the banquet. Or maybe she would like to have some time away from you. That would be nice too, I bet, for once uh, in a while. And you could go and she could stay, and, and, and then everything would be sunny and rosy when you get home. Far better to, to go to the banquet to keep your commitments than to say, oh, no, 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 I, I have too many things going on at home. I, I can't possibly come. I've got to focus on this relationship here. And this excuse is just like the first two it's a fabricated obligation, it's masquerading as a legitimate responsibility. It's not that any of these people could not make it to the banquet, simply that none of them actually wanted to go. Now you see, I hope, what what Jesus is doing. Not just what he's saying, but what he's doing with this parable. He's showing them that God's rich invitation has already gone out to those who have been invited. It's coming again. And the people who are sitting there, who are saying nice things about being a part of the kingdom of God, they're not strangers To the invitation that God has given to his offer. The gospel is going out to people who have circled their calendars and they've made their RSVPs and they've said, Oh, we can't wait to be there. I'm going to have the chicken. She'll take the fish. We'll definitely show up. You can count on us. Set a place. We'll be there. The gospel's gone out to many who knew the promises of God, who heard the invitations of the prophets. Many people who like to sit around declaring benediction upon those who would join them in eating the bread of God's kingdom. But when the time came, when the divine servant showed up to say that everything was ready. Not sometime in the future, but now. When Christ showed up to say that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. When Jesus showed up to announce that now everything was ready, all the Pharisees and the scribes and the leaders of Israel, they all alike began to make excuses. Ah, I've got this thing. No, I, so many other things on my plate right now. I'd love, I'd love to come. Blessed is, is he who will eat, but not, oh, I'm, I just ate, actually. I've got all these other things. Just empty excuse upon empty excuse. And all their feigned enthusiasm just evaporates. Now, if we step back a moment from this parable, from this passage, we recognize that this is exactly what happens when the gospel message goes out today. And we make our excuses. There are many who, who, who simply deny that, that this is Reality. Right? There are many out there who deny that there is a God who has been estranged by our sin, deny that there is a God who offers a, a chance at reconciliation through Jesus Christ. There are many who scoff and say, this idea of some banquet, some great grace, some, some wonderful mercy that you all get to come and partake of. What a bunch of hogwash. There are many that think of it that way, but there are perhaps far more who like to say nice-sounding things about heaven. How wonderful it will be to go there. Won't it be great when we're all together and we imagine all these wonderful things and, uh, and it shows up most often when we have to deal uh, with death. We try to avoid it most of the time, but it shows up most often when, when somebody we know has died and suddenly we've got to say something. It's like that awkward moment. You're waiting for somebody to change the, the subject and we say all manner of stupid things because we're supposed to say something. We're supposed to make somebody else feel good well he's in a better place now well i bet she's just sitting on the porch just watching the sunset like she always did oh he's got his wings now and we come up with so many different things and it's just lip service we make it sound like we really care about something else something beyond some other opportunity that god will give to us but then but then the gospel comes to us we begin to make our excuses. Then we, we talk about something like the hope of life eternal, and then we busy ourselves with possessions and relationships and all kinds of delightful things that make deplorable saviors. That's the tricky part, isn't it? None of the things that these people were using for excuses were sinful in themselves. Fields and farms and, and marriage, human love, wonderful things, blessings from God. Gifts from him to steward according to his purposes. It's so easy to focus on those things that are temporal, that are passing away and to to neglect and to excuse ourselves from the table of God's eternal promises. Last week, Pastor Andrew called us to live our lives from an eternal vantage point. The reality is that far too many settle for far too less. When the gospel comes to us, we say, yeah, that's nice. Yes, I'd, I'd love to be a part of that, but, well, not yet. No, no, I think I, think I have a few other things that are just too important. And very often, God's rich invitation is answered by man's empty excuses. And actually, the only reason that any of us get to come to God's banquet of mercy at all is because of God's gracious resolve. We find this in the remainder of our passage, God's gracious resolve. Now, one of the the really troubling details about this parable is the way that the host's invitation is refused by every single person who was originally invited. Not one of them shows up. Not one of them comes. In fact, that's the closing line, verse 24. I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Back there in in verse 18, literally the Greek says, they all began from one to all to make excuses. Every single one of them. It almost reads like a conspiracy. Like they were all in it together. And one commentator suggested that the tactic actually was intentional. He said it was a coordinated act of ostracism. Informing the host that he's no longer socially acceptable. It was the ancient version of what today we call a cancel culture. It was like uh, the popular clique deciding which high school nerd is not worth talking to anymore and so you just snub them and make sure they know that they are on the outside. Perhaps more, it's, it's like Dostoevsky's Grand Inquisitor and he has the gall to sit down and to sit down across from Jesus and to inform him that with all the earthly achievements of organized religion, Jesus' services are no longer needed. Well, if that is the conspiracy that's behind these excuses, then the goal of these, uh, this whole parable, and and what these, uh, these guests are trying to do, the goal is really pretty simple. The goal is to turn God's mercy from a gift that ought to be received into a tool that can be controlled. You know, if you're going to have a party, there are only so many people that are really worth inviting, aren't there? They're the people you want there, and then they're the people that you're not sure you want there at all. And what would it say about you if those were the kind of people you had associating with you? And so if if all the people that ought to be there, all the people that look good enough to be there, if they're all busy, well, then, then the party will just have to be rescheduled. Alterations will have to be made until they can show up according to their own preferences. But thankfully, God is not so fickle as to allow his salvation to be hijacked by outwardly impressive religious elite because our God is resolved. Our God is resolved to spread his banquet not before those who demand it on their terms, but before those who know that they don't deserve it. And so when the word comes back that that all of the original guests have, have turned aside, when he hears about the The insult leveled uh, by his prospective guest, what does the host do? He doesn't sit on his hands and cancel the party. He's resolved that his house will be filled, that his table will be full, that his banquet will continue. He sends his servant, it says, into the streets and the lanes with a message to bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. In other words, he sends him out to bring in the outcasts those that nobody cares about, those that nobody wanted at their banquet. In fact, he sends his his invitation to exactly the kinds of people that the Pharisees overlooked in their earthly banquets. Verse 21, the list of four uh, undesirable classes of people there, that's the same list of four that shows up back in verse 13, the ones the host at Jesus' dinner party should have invited. And so this, this host in Jesus' parable, he's sending out his invitation to those As it says in verse 13, you should have invited those who cannot repay you. That's who God sends his invitation out to. Not to the ones who think they can and think they ought and think they ought to be entered in and and greeted with a kiss and a hug and oil upon their heads because they deserve to be there, don't they? No, God sends his invitation to those he knows and they know could never possibly break even by good behavior, by being the ones that everybody wants to hang out with. And that's the thing about God's Feast of Mercy. It is always entirely a charity case. Always. Without exception. The riches of salvation prepared in Jesus are given only to those who acknowledge their inability to break even with their Creator. And so in spiritual terms, as we think about the poor and the lame, the blind and the maimed, What is this talking about here? Well, these are the sinners and the tax collectors that Jesus said were coming into the kingdom before the scribes and the Pharisees. These are the poor in spirit. These are the contrite in heart. These are the foolish and the weak and the low and the despised and those whom God has chosen to shame the strong and to bring to nothing the things that are. God sends his invitation to the outcast. He sends his invitation to the outcasts, not just inside the city, but also outside the city. He sends his servant out to bring in in the vagrants who are roaming out there in the wilderness, to bring in the masses until every last seat around his table is occupied. And of course, this means uh, that the invitation goes out not only to the outcasts of Israel, but also to the outcasts of the Gentiles. In the course of the history of the church, after the days of Jesus' resurrection, this invitation went out through men like Peter and John, and Philip, and Stephen, and went from Judea to, uh, from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and went out in Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas stood up and spoke to the Jews in Acts chapter 13, verse 46. They spoke to the Jews and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy, of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. That is, we're going to the highways, we're going to the hedges, we're going to those outside the city, and we're going to compel them to bring them in. They're compelled, as Matthew Henry says, not by force of arms, by force of argument. It's not conversion at sword point. It's not bringing them in through violence or oppression, but, but through preaching, through pleading. And the apostles and the preachers and the teachers after them and all those gifts that the Lord has given to his church, they go out to convince the masses that this God who seems so distant, so disconnected, he's actually graciously resolved to extend his mercy exactly to those who don't deserve it. And if you just happen to be a Gentile here tonight, any, any Gentiles? If you just happen to be a Gentile tonight, has been brought in to the mercy of God's kingdom, it was because God was graciously resolved to grant mercy to you. To seek you by the hedgerows where the vagabonds gather. To seek you out from the outcasts. To bring you into the city. To bring you into his people. To bring you into his feast. And the question is, what will you do with God's invitation? It goes out. Often it meets with excuses. If you've not answered God's invitation, will you be content with excuses? Will you be content to exchange the birthright of the kingdom, the feast, uh, the supper of the the lamb? Will you be content to exchange it for a bowl of stew, to give up that birthright for something that's gone in an instant and leaves you all the hungrier after it's gone? These are the excuses that we find, our possessions, our relationships, as, as wonderful as they may be in this life are but empty and fleeting. If you've not already answered, will you settle for excuses? But for those many of you who have answered, what will you do with God's invitation? Will you share it with your fellow outcasts? Will you tell sinners like you about God's provision in Christ? Will you compel them to come in and take a seat at God's table? you tell them about God's rich invitation that the feast of God's mercy is only available to those who don't deserve it? This is God's invitation to us all in Christ to come and eat and drink by faith. Before we do that, let's gather together in prayer. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, gracious King, we thank you that you are the one who has gathered a people from among the outcasts, from among the low and despised, the things that are not. We pray, O Lord, as you have grafted us in as wild branches into your kingdom, as you have made us a part of your people, O Lord, would you keep us? Would you keep us speaking of you and being a part of that extending of the invitation that as it goes out, every every seat in your home would be filled, Every spot in your kingdom would be full of another one who doesn't deserve to be there, but who you draw in by your mercy. Would you do that, O Lord, for the sake of Christ, in his name and his glory we pray. Amen. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come by. And eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, says the Lord, and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Come now to the table of the Lord which proclaims God's mercy to his people, his abundant gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. We come not to wine and milk and water, but we come to wine and bread, symbolizing for us Christ's blood and his body, his body broken uh, for the forgiveness of sins, his blood poured out for the remission of them and, and his body and his life given over for our sanctification and for our redemption. We come now to a table which proclaims to us the gospel. And if you have believed that gospel, if you have publicly professed,